Happy Father's Day uh, from me to you. Thank you for uh, a great week of VBS. So many people volunteering. We had over a hundred kids attending every every night this week, and we had over sixty volunteers doing things all over this building. It was it was a sight to behold. And if you were a part of that, thank you for uh, investing in the lives of children. Um, Bible discovery is something that is very important to us at any age. Doesn't matter how old or how young. To discover truth is paramount to us. We want to champion that and teach that. That's what we hold to. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. As we continue in our book study, the summer of James. Today we're going to be talking about uh, favoritism, the sin of favoritism. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. I want to I want to say one of the hardest things to do to teach truth is we believe teachers are held accountable for what we know and what we teach, that we walk the talk and we do what we know. So it, it's always difficult for life group leaders or teachers of any age, children, preschool and students, and um, hard to get up here and talk in front of you being held accountable for something that is so difficult to do. Simple in truth, difficult to do because we learn today we break one law, we break them all. So it's with humility today that I want to come to you and talk to you about something that I have not mastered. And I don't know of anyone that has since Jesus walked on this earth. Read with me. Chapter 2 of James, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in this good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made the distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in this scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we stand in awe of your word. Teach us today a very simple truth, but life-changing in nature. Help us to understand words that are elementary, but deep, deep in theology. Thank you for those here today. May we all be hearers and doers of the word. Fortunate your name that we pray. Amen. There's two truths in the book of James, faith and works. Both are important. They play a vital role in the life of a believer. Faith and works. If we have too much of one and not enough of the other, we have a lopsided journey in our walk with God. The goal should be the balance of the two, that we balance faith and works, the information and the doing of the word. James started off, we talked a few weeks ago about being hearers and doers of the word, that we want to learn and find out as much as we can about scripture because we want to do the work of God. Not that we want to know the work of God, that we do what we know. The danger is that we know all this stuff and we don't do what we know. That's the accountability that comes with it. So I want to talk quickly about liberty and license before we jump into the word because I believe this whole book talks about liberty and license. Liberty or freedom. License or a pass, if you will. One is the fulfillment and one is the bondage. Freedom that comes with obeying the law and the bondage that comes from breaking the law. Sometimes the extreme of, the, of either one of these can be called legalism or legalistic. I'm not going to talk much about that word because it's going to come later on in the book and I don't want to talk about a scripture that's coming. But it can be a very dangerous trap if we focus on one or the other alone. We have to talk about both at the same time. It's the bondage that we want the freedom from. This discussion should put to rest forever the idea that any of us get to heaven on the basis of good works or a good reputation or relative morality. It should put that to rest. Some think that they can stand before the judge of the universe, before God, and appeal to Him on our sin based on what we have not committed. That would be the same irrational thinking that we would stand in front of a judge one day, maybe we have, holding the speeding ticket. 
We're holding a speeding ticket. We're looking at the judge. And we look at him and we say, I didn't rob a bank. I didn't murder anyone. Have leniency on me. The breaking of the law was the breaking of the law, not the leniency of what I didn't commit. That's where we lose our track of the grace of God. We want mercy. Mercy comes into play. Faith and works are hand in hand. And we need them both. To do what you know. James starts off this book, or this chapter, with favoritism. Now, for the purpose of illustration, and a fictional illustration, let's pretend that there's a finely dressed gentleman that walks in this door right over here in our service today. He's wearing a Dallas Cowboy shirt. Super Bowl rings. Tall, handsome, smells good. We escort him, or I, or Aaron, or we escort him over here and we say, here, have a seat right here, right down front. Can I get you any water or anything? Fictional, of course. And then over here in this door, we have a New York Giant fan. Maybe a redskin jersey comes in. He's short. He doesn't smell very good. He lost his Super Bowl ring. And so we tell him to go, why don't you sit over there in the back? There's a chair. Let, let me pull it out of the, I'll put you over here in the back. Now there's all kinds of little truths that we can grab out of that illustration. Number one is that favoritism can start arguments. <laughs> favoritism, I mean, we could start something really good today if we wanted to. We could start talking about baseball teams and uh, football teams and basketball teams, sports in any, for, in any uh, pattern of illustration that you want to throw up. The idea of what we wear. Any favoritism of a child you have, any favoritism of anything creates walls in division. God stopped that with the death of Jesus. Jesus tore that wall down. Jews and Gentiles, educated, uneducated. It doesn't matter who and what, those walls of favoritism came down. What we have to do today is focus on loving each other to do what we know. Number one, we need grace. We need the grace of God. Who is God to me? Verses 1 through 7, if you'll look with me there, we judge people and we pass judgment on human standards. And we're prone to judge people in their past, not in their future. Where the value of people 
is placed on what we value and not what God values. The emphasis here is God chooses the value. God chose the value of people. There is no human merit or earned place or position that we have in the kingdom of God. We don't have it in here. The church, little c or big c, we don't have the positional placement of value. Everybody is in the same place. If our church magnified the grace of God, there's no social status. There is no place that you fit into. Those walls Jesus died for are down. It's not who my neighbor is by the proximity of where they live. It's who my neighbor could be. Who my neighbor could be because of who I relate with. Powerful words of scripture. I read an interesting article this week I want to share with you. Because there's two parts to this. Now, actually, there's many parts. Two parts I'm going to talk about today. One of them is backstabbing. And the other one is comparison. Both are very dangerous tools to what Jesus is talking about in loving your neighbor. This is an article written this week that I pulled down by Eric Geiger. Eric Geiger is a vice president and a pastor in the area of Nashville. Jesus said to the world that you'll know us, disciples, by the love we have for one another. We talked about that one week, about people in the world today should know who the Christians are because of how we love each other. The good news is, historically, Christians have been known for that. The bad news is that we struggle to live out our faith and possess a Christian failing toward loving one another. People who have been around Christian faith for a long time can even learn how to backstab each other that appears Christian. Manipulative people familiar with the Christian faith can actually use Christian language to embolden their backstabbing. They can disguise their sinful behavior with the language of the people of God. With that in mind, here are three ways that we can spot Christian backstabbing. And by the way, Christian backstabbing is an oxymoron. <laughs> How in the world do you Christian backstab? Uh, there's nothing Christian about it. Number one, backstabbers frame gossip as prayer requests. A common technique is to frame gossip as simply sharing a prayer request that you can pray specifically. However, this technique employs further degradation to continue talking and continue a way of speaking freely about someone else. A lot of talking and very little praying. You've spotted a backstabber. Number two, backstabbers talk about the person rather than to the person. They talk about them, not to them. Another common technique is to ask for wisdom from someone about someone else. The best Christian backstabbers don't only ask for wisdom, they methodically bounce around from person to person to person, building alliances to tear people down systematically. Number three, backstabbers know lots of information on lots of people. 
Lots of people come because I am there for them, you say. Sounds like a very Christian thing to say, right? But the person who continually hears gossip from others is likely the person who sends signals that he wants to hear it. Backstabbers excel at having info on everyone and can leverage it at any time to suit themselves and to tear others down and build themselves up. Someone who gossips, backstabs, is likely to do the same to you. Danger. Danger, Will Robbins. Backstabbing. It affects our ability to love the way we should, to love our neighbor. Number two is the comparison. The comparison trap will crush me if I let it. The most dangerous place for this is, of course, social media today. It's a tool that enables and emboldens people to say things that they probably shouldn't or lift something they probably shouldn't. The comparison will poison the intent to love other people. And if not checked, will begin to poison me. Do I want others to do better than me? Do I want them to have more? Am I content at where I am and what God is doing in my life? How is comparison dampening the effort I make to love people? Danger, danger. Will Robbins. Number two. First, the grace of God. Who's God to me? The second, the word of God, the God I know. We need the word of God. God reveals himself to us through scripture. God is always revealing himself to us. How much time do we spend reading God's word? I challenge you to read God's word every day. In some fashion, read God's word. It's how God reveals himself to you. We only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. The most amazing thing about Scripture to me is that we know all this stuff and we learn all this stuff and we don't do what we know. I'm guilty. This, this sermon has, has beat me up pretty bad because it's not just knowing stuff and not doing it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the royal law, it says in verses 8 through 11. It's the royal law. Others' uh, translations might say king's law. The reason it says that is because it rules over all other laws. It's the law that rules over all laws. It's the royal law. It, interesting that God would put this section and topic together. And I want to point out that love your neighbor and if you break one law, you've broken them all are put together in the same section of Scripture. Because the Pharisees of the day and the Sadducees and all the people who were teachers of what I believe are held accountable for what you say and what you know are living by the law and they would divide the law and make sure the law was attainable. And James is putting in his book in the same section 
love your neighbor. Interesting that God would put those together. Everything we do should point to Christ. Everything we know should point to Christ. The best defense of the Bible's authority should be your life. That you can defend Scripture because of what's happening in your life. It's the testimony that somebody cannot argue with. It's not, you know, God's not doing that in your life. Yes, He is. God showed me that, no, He didn't. Yes, He did. It's the testimony of our walk as a believer that should be the best defense of the authority of Scripture. That you would walk with such integrity that others would ask, how did he know to do that? How did she know to do that? How does he have the self-control or the strength to do that? Maybe it's the inferior feelings that show up under stress. But God in his infinite wisdom and grace gives it to me over and over again. Probably in my worst moment that I can show love to someone. That's usually where it happens in our weakness. And it's, it's in the inferior feelings, inferiority complex, that sometimes that's the best place to start at showing love to someone because Christ showed me how to do it, pointing to Christ. Deal Moody, pastor and author, has one of my favorite sayings. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. That we do what we know. The reason for the Bible is not so we know all this stuff. It's so that we know what to do with all this stuff. Spiritual in matter, but practical in nature. Loving others is not just an act of your will. It's a choice that you make. The will in your life, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a friend, you choose to love people. It's not something that you manufacture. It's not an emotion. It's something that we choose to do. Number three, we need judgment of God. Verses 12 and 13, the judgment of God. Uh-oh. <laughs> it always comes down to this. Accountability for what we know and what we do. This is one of those topics that you, you kind of want to start with, and I thought about it. If you don't want to know something that you're fixing to be held accountable for, you probably need to get up and leave. Because as, as we talk about something today, now we're held accountable for what we know. Our words will be judged. Verse 12. Do I build up or do I tear down? The deeds will be judged. Do we point to Christ? Does everything we do point to Christ? Our attitude will be judged. It's the hidden motivation behind why we do stuff and how we feel and how we act and what we say, what we think. Who are we away from here? Who are we during the week? Who are you away from your family? 
Are you the same person all the time? We're judged for that. One obvious message to this whole section, however, cannot be left out. Our beliefs should control our behavior. If we really believe that the Son of God is who He said He was, and that He's gracious and loving, and His Word is true, and that one day He'll judge us, then our conduct will reveal our convictions. How we treat other people should say all we need to know about who we believe in God. What do we believe in God? Who is God to us? Who is God to me personally? Some of us, however, are still trying to gain favor with God. Losing sometimes the truth of Scripture. We allow something to happen to us that we forget God already loves us as much as we can possibly comprehend. A very simple truth. A secret that we try to teach to children, but us adults forget. You cannot be loved anymore by God. We try to gain favor with God, but He never shows favoritism. He never gets to the place that shows favoritism to you. We pray sometimes, I do, that we have favor with people. That we have the opportunity to have favor with people, that they look kindly on us, that they hear us, that we're representative of the gospel, that we're relevant for what they know and what they see and what they believe. God does not show favoritism. And our prayer is that a non believer can see that. He reaches out to each of us and meets us at our very point of need. Took it upon himself to die for that very reason. That we live a life free of sin and have a relationship with him. Favoritism would have had Jesus not hanging out with all these Pharisees. You know, I read, I read a whole lot of, of the New Testament what, what's amazing to me is the places Jesus found himself, or the, maybe the better way to say it is, the way we find, where we find Jesus to be, maybe it's the best way to say that, is with the sinners. He's always with the people who need him the most. He's not hanging out with the people that try to present the law. He is sometimes, and he sits and proves that he knows more than they do. Favoritism puts Jesus where he's needed most. Mercy wins. Heaven wins. Love wins. Every time. The passage of Scripture says, Show mercy to people, or you will not receive any mercy in your judgment from God. It ends the scripture in this passage with a very powerful point. We want to be treated a certain way, but we want to act differently. That's a problem. 
Because scripture teaches in black and white. If you show no mercy, you receive none. Knowing and doing. Do we do what we know? Now what? What is it that we need to learn today about our actions? Number one, pray and ask God to help to see beyond your ability. You can't see like Jesus without a relationship with him. I never want to have the opportunity to say something about Christ and not talk about the relationship with him. Because some of us don't know him personally. And I want to say at the end of this message, there's going to be people on both sides that would love the opportunity to talk to you about this Jesus that we keep talking about. If you don't know him, please don't leave today without understanding the relationship you need with him, inviting him into your heart and your life. He died for you and was raised again, a victorious life, lives today and wants to live in your heart. That we might see past the outside of people and into the heart of people. A viewpoint and a perspective that few have that I pray for and I pray for you to have. To not judge on the basis of status but judge on the basis of does this person need Jesus? Is there a truth that this person needs from Christ? Number two, to ask forgiveness for where we've broken God's law. If we've broken one law, we've broken them all, we said earlier. All we need is Jesus. The license and the liberty that we were talking about earlier, the freedom in Christ, freedom from the bondage that comes with the judgment that we know is coming, Mercy wins every time. Don't miss heaven by half a yard. In the Titans-Rams game in 1999, half a yard, half a yard. They were driving down the field, and he caught the ball, and he dies, and he comes up a half a yard short of the end zone. So no touchdown. Don't come up short. Heaven is waiting for you. If you break one law, you broke them all. Repent, turn away. Work on correcting our sins. Live and be known for what you're for and not what you're against. Sometimes we as Christians are known for the judgment of others. We should be known for the mercy of God. If we have a belief in God and we're practicing what we know, then we're doing that. That we have the mercy of God and we reflect that. Not the judgment of God. The judgment of God is on us. We're not reflecting the judgment of God. 
We're reflecting the mercy of God, or should be. Number three, that we live like Jesus. That we show mercy, that we show love, that we show concern and care. Be Jesus for someone who needs him the most. Mercy triumphs over judgment every time. In verse 13, he closes out this passage of Scripture. Mercy triumphs over judgment.